Welcome to episode 175 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking today in our interview with Eric Heisen, uh, who's the former executive director of DHS's digital service, which is uh, a, a piece of the U.S. digital service, and we'll talk a little bit about what that is and about the uh, uh, the many ways in which reforming uh, uh, U.S. government IT procurement can go wrong, and maybe a few that where it can go right. So, uh, welcome, Eric. Thank you. Hi. Uh, also joining us today uh, are uh, Michael uh, Mutek, uh, who is a senior counsel and uh, one of our uh, uh, principal procurement lawyers, because I thought it would be great to have, uh, uh, since we're going to be blaming litigation, or at least I am, uh, and protests for big chunks of what's wrong with uh, procurement, we ought to have somebody who actually does that and can defend it or not. Uh, so, Michael, great to have you on. Great to be here. Uh, and uh, also from outside the uh, the firm, uh, Gus Hurwitz, uh, who's been on uh, uh, before. Uh, he's the assistant professor of law at uh, Nebraska College of Law and always a delight to have uh, with us. Gus, good to have you. And uh, uh, continuing uh, our uh, 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 policy of introducing a few of Steptoe's summer associates to the podcast. Uh, Quentin Johnson, who's a rising third-year student at Yale Law School, uh, will be uh, uh, talking today as well on the uh, news roundup. So, Quentin, welcome. Thanks for having me. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe. More, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, I left out Alan. Uh, 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 Alan Cohn skipped right over you. Alan is, of course, a regular. Uh, he uh, was number two in pol- the policy office uh, at DHS after I left, uh, and now of counsel at Steptoe. Uh, uh, Alan, uh, forgive me for uh, skipping over you before rushing to introduce myself. I can see I really make my presence felt. <laughs> well, I, uh, my apologies again. Uh, it, I, my uh, uh, my excuse is it is my birthday, and now I am officially too old to be expected to remember anything. I'm uh, likely too old to care. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of that. It's, that's really what happens. This, this is what has happened to Bill Clinton, I'm convinced. He just doesn't care anymore. Uh, he'll say anything. So, um Let's jump right in. In fact, we'll jump in on a, another procurement issue, uh, which has been making the news a lot and a big cyber issue as well, which is Kaspersky Labs uh, uh, just took it in the shorts uh, from the U.S. government, uh, which basically said, you know, we just don't trust Kaspersky because of its ties to the Russian government, uh, and uh, not just they didn't just say it; they kicked them off a couple of GSA lists. Uh, this probably doesn't mean they their all their contracts are void or that they won't get any U.S. government contracts, but it's a very bad sign, and Kaspersky's taking it pretty badly. Uh, uh, Alan, uh, Michael, uh, uh, what is the, how significant is this? 
Well, it's interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting reflection on kind of what can happen when this kind of bow wave builds. So you had, uh, you've had, you've always had rumblings of this back in early May. I guess uh, uh, Senator Rubio did an interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, a question yeah, from nowhere question saying, from nowhere. do you think uh, we ought to be relying on Kaspersky to, yeah. I think, uh, uh, Admiral Rogers, right? Yeah, it was six, uh, six senior officials from the intelligence and law enforcement community, including uh, Rogers and others. Oh, one of those things where they all it. say, no, not me, yeah, no, exactly. not me, no, not me. Asked an open <laughs> Senate hearing whether they'd let their networks use Kaspersky software. Uh, and the answer was no, 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 no. And that kind of kicked off. Uh, what then led to uh, apparently FBI agents uh, interviewing Kaspersky employees last month, uh, and then GSA removing them from uh, uh, from their schedule, and also now you have uh, legislation working through Congress. Uh, uh, Senator Klobuchar from uh, from Minnesota introduced legislation to to bar Kaspersky products from uh, from DOD. Um, you still have, and, and, and Michael will be able to talk more to this, um, you still have the ability for Kaspersky products to come in through contracts, through third-party vendors, but it's a pretty striking set of statements that the government seems to be making. Well, they've been integrated into a lot of products without being advertised. I mean, their, their claim to fame is there's free antivirus and you can download it uh, and run it. Uh, but like all antivirus firms, they've moved on to putting um, uh, sensors in so that they can spot uh, uh, intrusions and start re- reporting on those intrusions. They've moved to the uh, corporate networks uh, and they've integrated themselves into other people's products. Uh, Michael, what is what does this uh, delisting mean for all of that? Well, the delisting is interesting. First of all, that question from nowhere had many people scratching their heads saying, hey, just what do you know that we should know? And part of it is what we just talked about, the fact that I remember reading that half of peop- the people who use Kapersky are unaware it's embedded. Now, what does this mean? Well, at the present time, not that much because you could still, if you're a government agency, buy outside of the GSA schedule. And that doesn't mean you have to pull Kaspersky out if it's in and embedded in your your, uh, software. But it does send some message that some people need to pay attention to. One, it also comes at a time when the administration has certain significant goals and promises that were made with regard to U.S. government procurement and by America. And we just recently saw on June 30th an OMB and Commerce memo that indicates increased scrutiny of Buy America and the Berry Act. And that followed on the executive order in April to ensure federal procurement awards maximize the use of goods, products, and materials produced here in the U.S. So you have a combination of Buy America com- uh, combined with concerns of well, what did Rubio know that could make life a little difficult. Just one other point on this, though. There's always the issue of reciprocity, and I think we need to keep our eyes on that. If we take action, they may take action. 
Yeah, well, the Russians might decide that they aren't going to buy American uh, computer security products, and since their uh, economy is at least the size of Belgium's, uh, that will have some impact. Uh, uh, but I don't think they were buying it anyway because uh, uh, they didn't trust it, uh, and they didn't trust it probably in part because they knew what they'd do if they were in that same, same position. Uh, uh, so my guess is this market, the cybersecurity market, is inevitably going to fracture, uh, and the Chinese are never going to rely on American uh, uh, computer security products, uh, and uh, uh, neither are the Russians. Uh, if we're lucky, we can hang on to the rest of the world's markets, because it turns out that the American products are uh, a lot better than most of the competition. All right. Well, let's uh, uh, let's move on to um, uh, litigation. Uh, since this is the cyber law uh, podcast, uh, we ought to talk about law, even if it is kind of dumb law. Uh, uh, the Knight First Amendment Institute has sued, claiming that at uh, uh, real Donald Trump uh, Twitter account. Uh, is a public forum and he cannot block anybody uh, uh, because that doesn't allow them to reply in real time to his tweets and have them all distributed along with his tweets to his uh, uh, followers. Uh, 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 let me ask Quentin to kind of tell us what the lawsuit's theory is. So the Knight Institute's bringing this on behalf of, of seven individuals who are critical of the president uh, in response to some of his past tweets. And uh, they're basically saying that by blocking these individuals from replying or from following the at real Donald Trump account, they're not allowing them to engage in a public forum. They're restricting access to public documents, considering that Sean Spicer had said uh, in the past that at real Donald Trump statements could be considered statements, official government statements. Uh, and then finally, that uh, they're limiting their ability to petish, uh, petition for a redress uh, of grievances. Um, now, it, there's a big question in my mind, uh, you know, how much harm is actually done by uh, limiting this, but it definitely reduces their ability to pick up extra followers when they can't be replying to at real Donald Trump. Yes, it, does, it doesn't allow them to uh, hijack his audience. Uh, uh, Gus, is this every bit as wacky as I think, or, or does it have a chance, or, or, or are those things not inconsistent? You know, my uh, gut reaction to this case, my intuition is I want to be snarky about it. I want to make fun of it. I think that it's a stupid case, except that there might be some interesting there there. So uh, my, my uh, snarky quip that I'll start with is to note the irony that Twitter is about the laziest, simplest least sophisticated form of democratic engagement there is. But it actually could, uh, this case could be an important case in defining the nature of the First Amendment um, in this context and some other contexts online. Um, what is a public forum? Is Twitter a public forum? We don't have case, laws, case law on that. If the courts do say that, hey, this is a public forum, it's not a crazy conclusion that they could reach, um, that suggests that a lot of other online fora could also be characterized as public forums. Um, the general starting point, I think, for understanding how to think about this case is that the courts are reluctant 
to broadly define what counts as a public forum. So I think that the courts are going to be reluctant to say, yes, Twitter uh, discussions, uh, Twitter profiles and accounts can be public forums. I think that the courts will probably try to find some way to weasel out of looking at that issue directly. And a, a number of people who have looked at this uh, highest profile would be uh, Eugene Volokh, um, have focused on whether or not this is the president tweeting as the president or the president tweeting as Donald Trump. If it is the president tweeting as Donald Trump, then this isn't a government official engaging in government speech, and that's likely the easiest way out of the, the uh, tricky public forum discussion. So, and, and it's easy to say that. It, it was his Twitter account before he was elected, so arguably, uh, uh, and he has one that's official, the, the, the POTUS account, uh, that apparently changes hands with uh, the office. Uh, uh, and at the same time, you know, the, the president doesn't say anything that doesn't reflect on government policy, does he? Uh, not only does he not say anything that, that doesn't reflect on government policy, his personal, if we call it that, um, Twitter account is used to really discuss uh, public policy quite directly. He announces policy initiatives. He announces meetings with uh, foreign leaders. He announces what he is and isn't going to do. So he's definitely using it in a way that gives it the appearance of uh, an official account, even though he does have the actual official account. Um, now, does this mean that any future president simply can't have a Twitter account unless it's completely locked down? Um, does this mean that any government official can't have a Twitter account? For me, really the interesting thing, the most interesting thing about this case isn't the president. It's all of the federal agencies out there and all the federal agency officials out there who are using Twitter in a really substantive and arguably meaningful way to uh, engage with the public about the work of uh, the, their agencies. And I, would argue that, I would argue that um, in, to an extent this whole idea is uh, anti-speech in terms of its – it would say that any government official, not just uh, Donald Trump, uh, um, cannot use Twitter the way ordinary people use it. Uh, unlike everybody else, when he says something, he has to – allow people, you know, griefers and trolls to immediately uh, take his audience over and start broadcasting to them. Uh, um, and that's going to disincentivize him to speak. And so it is a, it's a kind of penalty on speech, isn't it? I think that that's absolutely right. Twitter is a really interesting and engaging forum uh, and way to engage directly both with agencies and for agencies to engage um, with uh, uh, citizens and uh, individuals and entities that they're supposed to be engaging with. And uh, I would say for any law students who are out there listening, perhaps, uh, there's a lot to be written, a lot of great student note topics and uh, future law review topics about the administrative state and social media um, and how the two should be engaging with one another. Uh, so I want to read those articles, so please go out and write them. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to bringing the lawsuit that says uh, uh, that uh, Sean Spicer's press briefings, where some people get to express views in the form of questions and others who are not admitted don't, is clearly a public forum, and I want in. Uh, I, I think all Americans should be invited. We should hold it at the Rose Bowl. I, I don't know factually um, who 
uh, Donald Trump is blocking on Twitter. I don't know if these are people who are jumping into conversations in an antagonistic sort of, hey, let's shut down the speech. Let's prevent Donald Trump's supporters from engaging in online discussions or if they're actually engaging in productive or attempting to engage in productive discussion. Um, I don't know to what extent that should matter, but as a uh, factual matter, I think it's a really interesting um, question and it could be an important part of this case. Well, it's Twitter. We know whether it's productive discussion or not. Alan? Well, I was just going to say, Quentin can write that Law Review article, but he'd have to do it 140 words at a time. <laughs> not bad, yes. I, in fact, you could, if you could do a 140-character uh, 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 Law Review article, uh, God, I, I, I might read it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or at least just a sequence. People could get through it. So. All right. Well, I wanted to uh, cover one thing because I thought it was really interesting and didn't get much coverage. Uh, Booz Allen has produced a report that gives us a possible explanation for why this not pet you know, worm was such a crappy piece of uh, ransomware and so destructive. Uh, uh, Alan, uh, uh, what's the theory here? Well, it's good. I mean, there's got to be a theory out there because, yeah, the, this software has got to be used, useful for something. Um, so the theory is that uh, that the NotPetya or you know that family of, of ransomware was devised to kind of hide the evidence of a larger scale campaign of using the MEDOC updating service to you know conduct more in- traditional intrusion activities across organizations. So this is. It's typical when you do an intrusion is you go back and try to cover your tracks, uh, usually in a very subtle and careful way. The theory here is that instead they just sort of used a nuclear weapon to blast all uh, a record of their intrusion uh, along with every other record in the system out of existence. Yeah, the problem is, of course, that the NotPetya software is not particularly convincing as ransomware. Right. It's highly destructive, but it bears no characteristics of software actually aimed at making money. Which led everybody to believe that the, the goal at the end of the day was to cause destruction uh, or at least in my view, to uh, to see if you could get another conversation going in which NSA was blamed for uh, uh, producing tools that hurt uh, ordinary people. Um, and neither of those really uh, uh, was true, but it was part of the coverage. Uh, I, uh, this makes sense, at least, as, as somebody just said, we got to wipe out all traces and we got to do it in a way that does not point back at us. Yes, that's a much more convincing argument than this was somehow... Uh, some ransomware campaign aimed to, aim to, uh, to try to accumulate virtual currency somewhere. All right. Um, Stuart, if I could hop in on this uh, yeah. real quick. If this theory is correct, and I uh, personally uh, am inclined to believe that it is correct, there's a really interesting comparison to be drawn between NotPetya and Stuxnet. If you think back to Stuxnet, it was designed to not spread. It was coded so that it would only affect the targeted systems. And embedded in that is an important aspect of um, uh, the law of war, the the law of armed conflict, which is proportionality. You're supposed to design your weapons so that they do not affect um, uh, civilian systems, so that they do not affect non-targeted systems. And this is the exact opposite. This was designed to uh, cause mass damage in order to obscure the target. 
that's going to raise some really interesting questions for those who approach these issues from the perspective of the law of armed conflict um, and cyber war perspectives. And in fact, well, and, that, oh, go ahead. Yeah, oh, go ahead. When, when, after the Russians have been prosecuted for war crimes in Chechnya and for war crimes in destroying Aleppo and all the civilians who died there, then maybe they can go after them for designing uh, not Petya as being unproportional. But since uh, the Russians aren't being prosecuted for any of those things and probably never will be and are getting away with it, it really also raises questions about why we're so hung up on proportionality when uh, our principal adversaries uh, are scoffing at it. I agree with you 100% there, and I think, uh, once again, coming from the law professor's perspective, there will be some really interesting law review articles comparing Stuxnet and not Petya. All right. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, uh, and I don't usually look forward to larvae articles. So, uh, um, the, um, the wing of the White House that's responsible for homeland security and cybersecurity has been doing a lot of talking recently. Uh, uh, Partly that's because they had to say, no, no, that's not really an impenetrable cybersecurity unit with uh, the Russians. It's more uh, dialogue. That's what it is, a dialogue. Uh, uh, and then also to explain why the uh, UNGGE talks failure is not a bad thing. Uh, um, looks like we're actually getting policy out of the White House on cybersecurity and policy that could have come from a, a you know an alternate universe of the uh, Obama administration. True enough, and I think you've seen that consistently from the beginning. You forgot to add to your list of things that that need to happen before the Russians um, get prosecuted for war crimes is that the GGE actually reaches a non-binding consensus <laughs> yes. on how international law applies in cyberspace. Uh, but yes, the the White House through a combination of of walking back and narrowing down. Is, um, is, seems to be focusing in on, uh, a more targeted approach to working together with allies and like-minded parties to fashion reasonable activities in cyberspace as opposed to trying to kind of grab the brass ring of declarative norms, of declaring, you know, this is what we shall do and shall be as opposed to what kind of are we and can we actually do on the ground and with who? Yeah, it, it, it's the difference between being an adjunct constitutional law professor and writing the art of the deal. It's, uh, it, it's <laughs> I'm not sure it's quite ascribable to either of those characteristics, um, but it, do, it is a, a surprising and refreshing amount of rationality um, and and plain spokenness not for not for shock value right. from the officials tasked with cybersecurity in the White House. So uh, uh, the other cyber development is Jeanette Mamfra has been named to Andy Osmond's uh, cybersecurity assistant secretary uh, ship. And uh, uh, in contrast to all of the um, uh, traffic uh, uh, log jams, uh, she gets to take her position immediately because she's not subject to confirmation. Yes, it's a quirk of the DHS authorizing law that the secretary uh, gets to appoint uh, a certain number of assistant secretaries without Senate confirmation. The president gets to appoint one or two others, uh, and it does. You were allow, one at one point, weren't you? Well, I was part of an even further quirk that said that well, if the secretary can politically appoint 
uh, assistant secretaries, why can't the secretary just move a career SES into an assistant secretary position? So, yes, I was happily the beneficiary of a two-step um, uh, oddity of DHS, uh, of which there are many. But Jeanette is good people. She's been at the department since 2010. She actually started as the deputy director of the Office of Emergency Communications, so a little mm-hmm. stub uh-huh. uh, office within NPPD. She was an Army officer for five years before that. Um, and... Uh, after co-chairing the PPD 21 and EO 13636 implementing task force, the you know cybersecurity for uh, critical infrastructure task force, she went up to the White House for a year and then spent a year and a half up in the secretary's office doing cyber policy before coming back to NPPD. Ironically, she and her co-chair from the from the implementing task force, Bob Kalaski, are now the two most senior people in NPPD while they wait for other people to get confirmed. <laughs> That's scary because yes, it did, it did have a lot of political appointees, and uh, they're all gone. Uh, yeah, that's that's tough. Uh, okay, I I want to finish up, but I, I in the uh, uh, spirit of this uh, episode in which we are just uh, suggesting law review articles, I do want to flag for our technical audience and maybe some of the lawyers uh, uh, that there's a very interesting article and better research to be done into uh, the lists of certification authorities that uh, various uh, um, browser manufacturers have recognized. Uh, And some of the Chinese browser manufacturers, some of the Chinese browser CAs have engaged in remarkably sleazy and quite possibly uh, 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 government-initiated actions that uh, subject us all to the risk of a man-in-the-middle attack, uh, uh, and certainly uh, Chinese citizens. uh, And they've been called on it by Google uh, in Chrome and uh, uh, by Firefox, uh, by Mozilla. Um, And... It is my sense they have not been called on it by Apple and they have not been called on it by Microsoft, uh, um, which may say something about who's got a bigger market in China. Uh, Firefox famously doesn't have to worry about that. Uh, they're a nonprofit and uh, Google uh, uh, just bailed years ago uh, because of their uh, unhappiness with the government's control. Uh, Apple is also in the process of being the very first, they're proud to say, uh, American company to build a backup system for all their data inside China so that they can comply with Chinese national security law. Uh, they were never so enthusiastic when they were getting calls from the FBI. Um, and, and so this does raise questions about uh, how much politics is buried in certification authority lists. Well, it's interesting if you talk about norms – what we're seeing now is the development of norms, and you're seeing it played out by multinational technology companies rather than by governments. Governments are kind of planting the stake in the ground for their territorial, uh, bounded by their territorial uh, kind of uh, uh, control. And the tech companies are making the decisions as to what the global norms actually are. Yeah, well, the global norm is I'm doing everything that's good for my business and then putting a gloss of principle on it. Well, we have Google and and, uh, Mozilla making the declarative statement and kind of we are not going to do this, the noisy objection. You have Microsoft quietly releasing patches and bumping people off approved lists, but not making 
you know, a, a, an international incident out of it. And then you have Apple kind of moving along with its plans for for domestic China uh, market expansion. Well, it's their biggest market. market. Uh, shouldn't be surprised when they treat it as such and uh, think that that government is a little more important than any other government that they deal with. Uh, all right. I, uh, Eric, you've been very patient. Uh, um, uh, I want to jump right in. First, um, can you give us an idea of how you came to be at DHS doing IT procurement uh, assistance? Sure, yeah, thank you for having me. So um, I did not expect to uh, be a government employee in my career. I, uh, back in 2014, was working at Google, uh, doing work that I loved, uh, helping people vote through Google's products uh, and engage in politics, um, and was in no way looking for another job. Uh, and then I uh, started talking to a former Google engineer named Mikey Dickerson, who had been part of the healthcare.gov rescue effort, mm-hmm. uh, where private sector tech folks came in to help get the site off the ground. Uh, and I was actually trying to recruit him to join my team, uh, and uh, <laughs> apparently was very bad at recruiting then, uh, because uh, I he instead started telling me what the White House was pitching him on, uh, which was this thing called the U.S. Digital Service, or USDS. Uh, and I found myself a couple weeks later uh, leaving out the door and becoming the sixth person of this group that uh, originally was inside the White House under OMB. Uh, we thought we were going to be about 12 people that we would take the SWAT team approach that had worked with healthcare.gov mm-hmm. and just apply it to other major problems around the government, just check off more boxes. And uh, that idea didn't last very long. Uh, pretty quickly, USDS was 200 people. And we found that, uh, as many uh, who have worked in government before us knew very well, you can't do all that much directly uh, inside the White House working with major major agency programs. So we created farm teams inside of different departments, which is how I ended up at DHS. Well, uh, and we're glad you did, uh, although I think you got a lesson in DHS dysfunction as well as uh, in the way the organization works. Quite a few. (laughs) few. Uh, How long did it take you to get your badge? Oh, I can't even not even remember that. It was definitely on the order of, I think, Weeks, so yes. not not as bad as some I felt that was, but <laughs> all right, it's a it's a uh, it's a, a shambolic or a, a department, but there are those of us who love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so you came to DHS, uh, and DHS has a lot of big IT opportunities, uh, and in many cases, the money to carry them out. Uh, um, but at least speaking from the perspective of the policy office. It was very rare, outside of maybe CBP, that um, uh, the organization could pull off a big IT project. Uh, uh, was that your assessment? Uh, it's you're right there, and it was not unique to DHS by any stretch. It's common across the federal government. The majority of federal technology projects uh, either deliver over budget and behind schedule, or they just don't deliver at all. Isn't that true? And I've heard that 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 is true for really big IT projects outside of government as well. That, uh, you know, if Ford Motor Company decides to have a revolutionary new IT project, it's got a 50% failure uh, uh, prospect as well. 
it has been true, although you've also started to see some of these large enterprises cha- dramatically change how they operate uh, to uh, to address that, and that type of transformation uh, had really not been seen at all in the federal government. So, uh, and I, I'm getting a sense that that's what you tried to bring to, to DHS. So can you describe the kind of change you wanted to see? Absolutely. And uh, so our... Uh, premise was that we were going to bring small, highly empowered teams of technical experts from the, the private sector, people who had backgrounds at uh, both Silicon Valley tech companies who had executed those digital transformations and other large enterprises, uh, and people inside the government who had been trying to do the right, the right uh, things the right way. Uh, and we would partner them with the uh, career government officials that were working on these large programs. Uh, so at uh, DHS, that meant starting with the USCIS transformation program, trying to digitize 7 million immigration applications every year, uh, working with uh, programs around import, uh, import-export and a couple of others uh, to uh, come in, share how this had worked well in the private sector uh, and uh, help nudge some of these programs forward. So CIS, if I remember, CIS, which is the... Um, the people who issue all of the uh, credentials that allow people to stay in the United States uh, on a permanent or semi-permanent basis uh, handle all of the naturalizations, uh, uh, work with an enormous number of people and an enormous number of records, has been has had plans to digitize its records and has been spending a lot of money on digitizing its records uh, for 15 or 20 years. You're, you're exactly right. And they, they started off, uh, in a, uh, very traditional approach where they wrote one large several hundred million dollar contract to a big, uh, technology vendor. And they, uh, then spent years, uh, cobbling together different systems, different, uh, uh, products from other companies, uh, and trying to wire them together in exactly the right way to do what they wanted. Uh, and they did all of this with very little technical capacity inside the agency itself. They had lots of very good program managers, people who knew their field, uh, but they didn't have anyone who could really uh, understand what the technology they were building was and why it ultimately wasn't going to work. Uh, so we were able to help them as they rebooted that project. So that would be a nice way word for scrapped as useless all the billions they'd spent in the last 10 or 15 years and said, all right, we're going to try it again. It was not quite billions, but yes, it was. Uh, and that was a very hard decision for them to make. Uh, but they, they brought in a CIO from the private sector. Uh, they tried uh, an approach that instead of having one giant contract, they split up the program into four small ones with vendors that were competing against each other for the work. And they started uh, using a method that's known as agile software development. This has been the standard way things are done in the private sector for over a decade. So let me stop you there, because there's there's one innovation that I think everybody now sees as standard, which is uh, I'm going to create a contract vehicle which pre-authorizes, pre-approves three, four, six uh, 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 IT companies we think they're good. We think they are responsible. Uh, and we're going to basically let them compete with each other and not open it up to others uh, on a host of other projects. So the idea is we're going to streamline our later pro- uh, procurement by pre-approving a small group. Uh, and that seems to be 
that's actually an innovation that, in my sense, is working. I, I'm going to ask Michael whether uh, he sees it the same way from a procurement law point of view. The IDIQ concept came about as an, an effort to try to get to a group of contractors that we could quickly go to. One of the issues is that this is somewhat perceived as a no-bid contract approach, even though there is competition. The, the issue here is a combination of the procurement process, the fact that IT procurements have always been problematic, and then the ease of challenging procurement decisions. The convergence of those factors come together. One thing I sent to you, Stuart, is that the history of IT procurement reveals heroic efforts tilting at the windmill of strict procurement regs. Yes. Because those procurement regs were developed for major weapon systems. So we, we've had a history of difficulty acquiring what used to be called ADPE, Automated Data Processing Equipment. Today it's IT. The government couldn't get it quick enough. It was out of date. So we try to do it better. We try to do it through IDIQ contracts. But the ID, IDIQ contracts became uh, well overdone, let's say. They became very large because you want to let everybody in to avoid the protests. So you really didn't get very far with them. You know, we had we had issues with IT since uh, the President's Blue Ribbon Commission on Defense Management. David Dacker yeah. was then chairman of, of HP. He headed that commission, and he urged a major overhaul of procurement processes because the government needed to buy more off-the-shelf IT, and the procurement laws weren't exactly helpful in that regard. We did. Yeah, I, 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 that, that, that was my sense. Is that this is a permanent problem, um, a, and 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 what. Um, Eric's team was trying to do was to solve a slightly different problem, which was um, a, now that the rest of the world has moved to the idea of doing quicker um, uh, DevOps type uh, 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 production of software. You know, let's 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 just iterate and reiterate uh, and get something out, uh, move fast and break things, all that stuff. Um, much more common as a way of. of Avoiding doubling down on mistakes, uh, and, and I, I gather what you were trying to do is to say, can we bring that spirit to the procurement process? Absolutely, and that's what we we were trying to bring that spirit and really do uh, what Michael had said. The uh, these IDIQ processes were uh, originally meant to do, but had morphed uh, to no longer be uh, be doing very well. Uh, across the department. So after after seeing what worked at uh, USCIS, where they were able to turn around that program, they still have some challenges, but the new approach meant that they delivered uh, around a, th a third of all immigration forms are currently processed digitally after a couple years of rebooting versus uh, virtually none after a decade. Uh, so yeah, because, I mean, there's nothing worse than sort of saying, okay, we've got a grand vision, and in 10 years, everything will be hunky-dory. And, of course, it's never hunky-dory because you can never designed for 10 years from now. Exactly. Uh, and you'll have 14 CIOs in that period, uh, all of whom would like to put their stamp on the program, et cetera, et cetera. And then, the, and then the, the, whoever is secretary when the first demo occurs changes everything. Uh, uh, so all of those things produce bad IT uh, and enormously expensive uh, um, uh, contracts. So 
the agility actually does reduce cost and reduce the clunkiness of the IT process. It really does. And it's all of, it's, uh, while many of the things you said are unique to government, the uh, high turnover of uh, political officials, of CIOs, uh, different priorities, we also see those things in the private sector, uh, and that uh, th- those parallels are why this method of uh, being highly agile, acknowledging that change is going to happen and embracing it instead of trying to plan around it, uh, is the way that you build successful software. Okay, so it was a great idea, mm-hmm. uh, and you came in with enthusiasm and from an institution that's known for excellence, uh, and yet you've written an article recently that says, yeah, it all ended in tears. Um, why was that? Yeah, so uh, what we tried to do was take these approaches that had worked in a couple of individual programs and try to scale them. We created a department-wide contract vehicle. It's it's terrible government acronym because every government program needs a terrible acronym, was FLASH for Flexible Agile Support for the Homeland. Uh, and uh, we uh, invited companies to bid, uh, and instead of having them write long-written proposals, they came in to do technical challenges where they uh, came into our office and wrote working software with uh, employees of my and team. And was this really just to see whether they could write code on, on the fly? Yes, uh, and to see how, how, how well they could write code. We saw uh, just knowing that they've built something before doesn't mean that uh, it's been built well. It doesn't mean that they know how to work uh, in an agile way or engage with, uh, with users and government employees in a way that is, uh, is productive. Uh, and it was amazing to see just how much that taught us. And the, the career program managers who were there with us said they wished they had been doing this for the last two decades because it was so different. So the problem with that is you, you, procurement officers are used to saying, do I have a good, complete, responsive package of right. paper in front of me? Uh, if they can tell whether they've got good code in front of them, that's a bonus. But that is not necessarily what they're trained for or promoted for. It's not at all, and that's one of the biggest problems with uh, the system. That was that uh, technical expertise was brought in by my team, uh, which were not career employees. Were all uh, folks like me on short uh, one to three year terms, and uh, it's severely lacking across the government. And because it was so lacking at DHS. Uh, we realized we really only had one shot to get this right, and that led us to creating a program, a procurement that was far bigger than it needed to be, uh, or than it should have been. Uh, we had, we thought we were going to have a couple dozen companies bid. We ended up with well over a hundred, uh, and things started really to go off the rails from there, which is, uh, because you had to, you had to find a way to evaluate all of those people fairly, uh, yes. uh and, uh, um, a bunch of lawsuits. When people were not selected, there were a bunch of lawsuits saying, you weren't fair to us. Right. We had a uh, hundred different companies coming in, doing these half-day challenges. Uh, my team was sprinting around a couple different floors of the uh, sprawl of DHS uh, office buildings around downtown D.C., uh, trying to evaluate them. And uh, it then meant that we had uh, thousands of pages of documentation that we were to be not prepared to uh, be managing and processing in a way that the procurement process demands. I, I kind of imagine it's a little like we're right next to DuPont Circle. The guys who play chess against 10 people uh, in DuPont Circle, they just walk along and make the move and knock to the next one, make the move. Uh, uh, and if they had to keep 
um, detailed written records of what they thought about each player, um, that would be more or less the situation you were in. It felt a lot like that, yes. So uh, let me ask Michael, uh, does anything about this surprise you? No. Frankly, what, what, what does surprise me is that I have seen in the articles, including your article, uh, that you're trying to take the lessons learned to help other government agencies because I, you're doing the right thing. The whole concept to have an agile procurement here makes a lot of sense, but you ran right up against uh, the, the procurement laws that are written with complex weapon systems in mind. There's got to be a way to adjust, because otherwise we're never going to be able to acquire in a timely manner needed IT and support. What I saw, what concerned me, was the large scale of the contract vehicle, because if you look at other large-scale contract vehicles, they've run into somewhat of uh, the same problems. And, and then the protest syndrome, and we can talk about that, uh, how do you prepare for that? It's difficult, but there are ways to try to address that. So let me ask about that. I mean, part of it was, if I remember, Eric, you got dinged for having inconsistent evaluations, inconsistent language. Uh, you, you said uh, this this does this and that's not good, and then someplace else you said about somebody else, this does this and it's good. Um, and it didn't look like you were treating everybody right. the same. Um, and that may be true, or it may just be that uh, you know you had a bad product and somebody who chose the wrong way to express what was bad about it, uh, um, but aren't you always going to get these protests, or is it possible to, to, to find a way to, um, uh, you talked about the idea of down-selecting in advance, uh, sort of, so that at some point you could start weeding out people who just clearly are not going to make it, uh, and who shouldn't be in there, and doing it on a quick basis where you can say, yeah, this is bad code, um, a, and give a yep. short explanation, the longer it gets, the more likely it is to give the lawyers something to chew on, is my guess. Yeah, I think there are really three ways to address it. The first is uh, what you had referenced, trying to run the procurement differently to get fewer protests, or at least get them earlier, so that we weren't dealing with them all at the end. Um, The second would be, uh, I think there's a lot that we could do to change how protests are, are handled. There, uh, Soraya Correa, the DHS chief procurement officer, who was one of the biggest advocates for this type of work, uh, said uh, in one of her debriefings of this that we had an agile process for the evaluation and then a waterfall process for the documentation. Mm-hmm. And GAO's procurement pro- uh, and protest process mandates that because they only get involved at the very end. They take your several hundred pages and they start reviewing it uh, in isolation. It takes several weeks. Uh, what I would love to see is uh, trying out having them involved throughout the process, uh, particularly when you're trying new things uh, or otherwise exploring ways to uh, cut down the time and uh, the uh, try and make the entire process agile, not just the uh, the the early evaluation stage. So let me ask Michael, uh, how does that sound to a government contracts lawyer? Uh, introducing GAO agility and review, I guess, early on uh, uh, is that is that going to work as with the law as it stands, or would we need to change something? And is it really going to work? Well, that's the process that many companies 
are using right now, where they're reviewing the procurement at several points in the competition. One, is the RFP adequate? Two, is our response compliant? Three, are we getting responses back from the government that comply with their evaluation scheme? It's a little more difficult with the government, but I have seen government agencies that are now engaged in what I call prophylactic protest prevention. And it's an effort to try to get at the root causes of a protest and eliminate them as soon as you can. Okay. Um, well, that, that that's actually kind of encouraging. Uh, it, uh, it, it, the the other issue that I thought I saw in this, and you alluded to, it's that that people protest because sometimes if the protest looks like it's getting traction, uh, the agency just says, "Oh, why don't we expand the number of people and we'll include you too, and then you can just shut up and stop protesting." Right. I uh, and uh, you know I don't know Michael, but I. Uh, if I were advising clients, there are probably clients I'd say, well, let's file the protest in the hopes that that will happen to us. But it's not just the lawyers that are advising it. The business people are very astute, and they spend a lot of time and money pursuing this award. And they are aware of companies, or at least anecdotally, that had protested and got some work, whether it be protesting a systems contract and they got a subcontract from the prime, or they protested and the agency let them in. Now, the reality is protests do not have a high success rate. Uh, you know, roughly 12% succeed through the protest. However, the effectivity rate is much higher. It's like 45%, 46%. That means they get some form of relief which could be let in. So they're, they're continually trying to go at it. Now, Congress is not exactly favoring this because the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee is addressing this very issue in the FY17 uh, NDAA, and they're uh, trying to address it two ways. For large contractors, if you protest and you're denied, you'll be paying the government's GAO costs. Yeah. Uh, for incumbents, here's a big one. Incumbents often protest because they keep working through the protest period. Well, if you are an incumbent in your protest, that's going to hold up or they're going to withhold your profit. And if you don't win, you're not going to get that profit. In fact, it goes to the other side, and you're going to be paying the cost. So there really is a lot of concern over protests. But in reality, protesting is an important remedy because it gives some, it puts sunshine on the whole procurement process. There are some benefits. But I like to say that the situation I would like to have is a situation where that protest process is well understood it's trusted, but rarely needed. We're not there yet. So I, I, it's my observation, having worked at uh, a number of government agencies, that often the political appointees are pretty talented people, not always, but uh, often, I, and um, they would never dream of handing over a really important decision to the career folks without some way to check on whether the career folks are actually doing the right thing, doing what was expected, and and, and keeping in mind all of the considerations that have to be uh, incorporated. Uh, but in um, procurement, the penalty for being a procuring official 
in terms of all of the extra scrutiny and record keeping and pain that you have to go through uh, and the, the the opportunity for people to find a scandal later is so great that I, there was not a single procurement I was going to get deeply involved in and that's by and large the advice that I would give most people is that unless you're going to do it full time, you don't really want to be providing guidance on these procurements for fear it'll turn into a, uh, a conflict of interest nightmare. Uh, and so in your agility work, how beyond the CIO, did you have a lot of uh, input from CIS? In the projects themselves, absolutely, and that was one of the one of the big lessons from healthcare.gov was that the uh, the senior political leadership had to get involved in technology and implementation because it could bring down or nearly bring down a uh, an entire signature policy program, and we saw that from from leadership across DHS that they were willing to get into the weeds on the technology and operational questions. Uh, less so on uh, what you were saying, the specifics of procurement decision-making, because that is such a highly regulated and specialized space. Uh, and I think that was one of the reasons we do see as some challenges here, because it's, it is much harder to bring leadership into these processes because of, uh, because of how complex and how risky it can be. So you, you've run all of these multiple chess games. You've produced hundreds of pages of documentation uh, um, and you've narrowed it down you've you've dealt with most of the uh, at least initial set of um, uh, protests uh, how did this story end up the way it ended up so was unfortunately not a happy ending uh, I left DHS in March uh, as uh, by design uh, I and others and my types of roles came in as uh, term-limited employees to make sure that we had moder- somewhat modern private sector skills. Uh, and as my tour was up, uh, we had just started to receive this a second round of protests, uh, and I went off for a couple weeks of vacation uh, and came back to find that DHS had decided, uh, in light of all the protests, to ultimately cancel the procurement. Uh, so I think there's there's a lot of there are a lot of lessons to be learned here, which is one of the reasons I really wanted to write this post and also share some of the things that are easier to say as a former government employee than someone who's still there. Uh, and I think DHS, as well as I hope, going to take these lessons along with other agencies and keep trying, hopefully on a smaller scale, uh, until we can get this right. So this is this is interesting, and I'll I'll ask Michael to weigh in on this too. It seems sort of the last strategy. You're an incumbent or somebody who really had high hopes for a particular program and you, you, you lose at the, in the last stage. Uh, then your job is to just make the whole thing to be, uh, out to be an enormous tar baby mess, smells to high heaven, and then hope that you know, eventually there's going to be a new administration or at least a new secretary and they come in and they said, oh, what is this, this thing that smells to high heaven? Good God, those guys screwed this up completely. Better to start over than to, um, uh, uh, to buy into a mess that, that everybody on the Hill is already complaining about. Michael, is that, is that, I, I won't ask if you've ever used that strategy, but do, do you think that that strategy has ever been used on you? Yes. When you have, when you have a large procurement that, that's, uh, 
important to a company. Enterprise threatening if you if you don't win it. it, it it's really all out war to try to keep that or to upend it. Uh, the the uh, procurement. Um, the we, we look at some of the major procurements that evade the news because protests are in the news and procurement problems are in the news. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing things to try to make the system better. And that's what I like about Flash. I mean, Flash was an effort to do some good things. I, I think it was too large. And when you have IT, there are certain things you have to do. I also see government agencies oftentimes, when they have a selection, let out a sigh of relief and then don't justify the decision well enough. I mean, we've been on the winning side of procurements, and we have gotten in there and told the government agency, look, you need to do a reevaluation because you haven't done a good job putting your thoughts on paper. It's the paper that's going to be reviewed in the protest. Yep. All right. Um, so, Eric, um, we usually give our guests, as we're closing up, the opportunity to talk about um, what they're planning to do next, what our listeners might watch for, articles they're going to be writing, speeches they're going to be giving, testimony uh, to uh, congressional committees that they're likely to uh, be called for. Uh, do you have anything that uh, the people who enjoyed this should be looking for uh, for the future? Well, I, I hope not the last thing you said. Uh, <laughs> I am uh, enjoying a break after wrapping up my government service, figuring out what, what comes next and consulting with some groups I really care about. Uh, but I'd encourage folks to take a look at the article if they want to, to learn more about this, and particularly for your technical listeners, uh, to think about if uh, a tour in government might be something they want to they want to consider. The U.S. Digital Service is still here in this administration. Uh, they are still hiring. They're still do- they're still doing a lot of great work. And it was uh, as a technologist the most important thing I've ever done. And I hope a lot more uh, technologists uh, from all sides of the political spectrum will will do a tour of duty in government and think about that as part of their career. Yeah, you should come back just occasionally to give free advice. You know, I I. I talked to somebody who was on an advisory board. Uh, he said, yeah, I keep getting put on these advisory boards. I, and I said, why? He said, well, because uh, all the people who screwed things up when they were in government need to come back and tell uh, the uh, folks that are doing it now not to screw it up that way again. Uh, and um, and there is value in that. Uh, and I certainly have a few screw-ups I could uh, share with uh, the new team. Um, so uh, thanks very much for coming in. Uh, uh, thanks, Michael Mutek, for your contribution and dose of reality about uh, what the law will allow and won't. Uh, uh, thanks also to uh, Gus Hurwitz, Alan Cohn, uh, and Quentin Johnson for their contributions to the News Roundup. This has been Episode 175 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, don't forget, if you have a guest interviewee to suggest, uh, send your suggestion to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if they end up on the show, we will send you our highly coveted and about to be awarded uh, to Eric uh, and Quentin uh, Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug, uh, complete with logo. 
uh, so send those suggestions in. Coming up, we're going to be joined by David Itell, the CEO of Immunity Inc., uh, and then we're likely to, just about likely to go on uh, hiatus uh, uh, for a month, uh, the month of August, uh, uh, to recover and uh, hike the uh, the Thames path, among other things. Uh, um, and then we'll be back after Labor Day, enthusiastic with a whole new cr- uh, uh, group of interviews. Uh, so we hope you'll join us then as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.